0: to this God-inspired message from Shofar Christian Church. We trust that you will enjoy today's message and that it will encourage you to grow deeper in your relationship with Christ our Savior. You know, sometimes we find ourselves in difficult situations that we would not have chosen, if we, that we would have avoided if we had a choice. And um, that we would have weaseled ourselves out of if we could have. Um, and I think most of us experience situations like that in our lives. Some of you are probably experiencing it right now. Some of you probably have. I'm convinced all of us will. And, um, you know, I, it, it's... I think one of the most difficult things to do in a situation like that is to to maintain the right attitude and the right perspective, because when we get into difficult situations like that it's it 's so easy to become useless because of the wrong attitude that we have it's like we get angry, we get upset, we get afraid we you know all kinds of things go through our hearts and minds, and um, you know we, we end up. Handling the situation very badly. Now, I remember I was in a situation like that um, a couple of years ago in 2005 when Rochelle and I, at the end of 2005, went to Franchuk. Um, we, were, we were sent there, and we had, <laughs> it was like, uh, you know. The, um, Fred and the guys just sort of threw us into the deep end and just said, swim. They didn't tell us what they were, what we were getting ourselves in for. And to some extent, I'm actually thankful for that. Because I, I always thought back at, at the situation, you know, and wondered, you know, if I knew what the situation really was and what all the challenges of the situation was, you know, how would I have responded? Would I still have gone? Would I still have wanted to go? Because what happened was we came to Franchuk and... The congregation is, a, is a, a wonderful, wonderful congregation. I mean, Franchuk, I mean, those of you who have ever been there, it's, it's one of the most beautiful places, not only in South Africa, but in the world. It's little, little France, they call it. And I think next to Cape Town itself, it's the biggest tourist attraction in South Africa. You know, Lots of people from all over the world go to Franschhoek. Beautiful. I mean, you drive in there and just mountains on all sides, vineyards, spectacular beauty... And uh, that congregation that, that we went to was a, a congregation that had been there since the early 80s. In fact, it was the, probably the first Pentecostal charismatic congregation in that sort of area of the Western Cape. And, but it, 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 it had been through the mills a bit. When I got there, I was the, I think, of the fifth or the sixth pastor. And that was in, like I said, 2005. And of the first four pastors, before Shofar got involved there, no, none of them left on a, on a good foot. All of them were either chased away or, or left in, in really bad circumstances. The one pastor, I mean, it was actually going quite well with the church when he was there. I think the church was, was a few hundred strong. But, um, you know, relationships were really bad and so on. And apparently, he stood up one Sunday and he started sorting people out from the pulpit and really fighting with the people in the congregation and shouting at them. And halfway through the sermon, he said, you guys are never going to see me again. And he walked out and they never did see him again. I think the pastor after him had an extramarital affair and got kicked out of the ministry. I mean, just to give you an idea of the situation, I knew none of that. (laughs) When I arrived at France to pass to the congregation, I knew not, nothing of what was going on I mean there, there were just so many problems the The church you can imagine had dwindled down to just a few. I think when we arrived there, there were maybe thirty five forty people in the congregation um, and, and and the congregation really had lots of hurts and lots of problems and and like I said, when we arrived there we didn 't know this. we knew nothing. <laughs> I knew nothing. Slowly but surely, as I got to know the people and started talking to the people, I discovered all these problems in the situation. And I'm like, oh my goodness, what's going on here? What am I going to do? You know? And I, and I remember sort of feeling this, you know, you know that feeling when you, it's like a cold hand gripping your heart, you know? It's like, oh, oh you know, <laughs> I don't know if I can handle this. And I just, I, I used to spend hours, you know, in my office, not, not working, was sitting by my computer, or spending time with people, just praying. Like, God, what am I gonna do? This is, this is serious. I mean, this, this. I mean, the stuff that happened here. I like. You can understand that people are upset, people are offended. I mean, the church had a reputation, you know, of going through all these issues and you know just being in a mess. They, they used to call it the Bosch the the bush church, because it, it there was a lot of trees and stuff around it. And, and, you know, the Bush Church had a bad reputation in town because bad things were happening there over the years. Every now and again something bad happens and the church falls apart. And, you know, um, people were offended. A lot of people in, who had been in the church were still in the village, but they were no longer in the church. And they were offended. They were hurt. You know, and, and here I come and I have to pastor this congregation. And it's, it's, it's the first congregation that I have to pastor you know, by myself. I'd been an assistant pastor in Stellenbosch, and now I was a senior pastor in Franschhoek. And I'd been thrown into the deep end, and I had to swim. And, and honestly, you know, after discovering you know, everything that had gone on there, and that was sort of simmering under the surface, I really wonder whether I would have chosen that situation and, and that congregation to pastor if I had a, had a choice. But, you know, God had chosen that I be there. And... You know I had to you know, how do you handle a situation like that with a good attitude? How do you handle difficulty that is not your fault and that you didn 't necessarily choose with, a, with the right attitude? How, how do you handle it when you end up in a job situation that is very difficult where, where your boss and your colleagues may be unreasonable and where they take advantage of you where when you do something bad, you get the fault. You get the credit. But when you do something good, your boss takes the credit. That's a real situation that happens. I mean, some of you know, some of you are in those situations right now, or some of you have been in those situations. What, what, what if you, you, you work for a boss, um, and because you know, he has certain deadlines and pressure on him, he puts that pressure on you, and he threatens you, to get you to work exorbitant hours, or maybe he doesn't do his job, and, and the pressure comes on you, and you have to do it for him. And what are you doing in situations? I mean, uh, my wife Rochelle was, was in a company in, 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 uh, when we were still in Stellenbosch, um, and it, it was a landscaping company, and, 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 and the, the owner of the company had a, he had a reputation as a very difficult person. I mean, he'd had, by the time Richelle arrived there, but we only discovered it you know, after she started working there, he'd had probably half a dozen PAs <laughs> working for him. And, and they only lasted a couple of months. And then they left because he was a terrible boss. He used to shout at everyone. I mean, you could always cut the tension with a knife in that office. I mean, it was really unpleasant to work there. No one wanted to work there. But that was just the kind of guy he was, you know what if you have a child you know that has a disability that's born with a disability down syndrome autism something like that something you had no control over how do you handle that what what do you do if your child becomes a drug addict we were down in in the cape and there's, there's this lovely couple you know in the church um there and 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 they beautiful child who's become a serious drug addict, and it rips their heart out. She ended up on the street, sleeping on the street. What do you do in a situation like that? How do you handle difficulty like that? What do you do when, you know, because you become a Christian, there's all of a sudden conflict in your family? And they fight with you. Maybe you gone from uh, you grew up in a different church tradition, and now you, you come to Shofar, and, and they feel rejected because you you've changed from from one denom- their denomination to to Shofar. And they feel like you've rejected everything that they taught you and the way they raised you, and, and there's this conflict in the in the family. How do you do, deal with situations like that? How do you, how do we deal with the situation in South Africa where there are these massive historical inequalities, and there's this anger with many people. Anger because of injustice. Anger because of oppression. Anger because they never had a fair chance. And, 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 and it wasn't like I oppressed them, personally, but my forefathers might, might have. What do we do with that? I mean, you can understand. I can understand that anger. I can understand that being upset and even bitter. But, but, but how do you deal with it from both sides? How do you deal with it when you didn't have a fair chance? How do you deal with it when you, when you were oppressed? It's, it's not that easy to maintain the right attitude. It's not that easy to live in that situation in the way that God wants you to, right? And you only really know it if you've been through it. I mean, it's easy to give theoretical answers, you know, sitting on the side, sort of in the, in the grandstands, but it's more difficult when you're actually in it, when it's actually your child, when it's actually your life, when it's actually your job, when it's actually your family. It's more difficult, Right? But the reality is we're not the first generation to have to deal with these issues. Every generation deals with these issues and the Bible actually addresses it. And I want to read you a few examples from 2 Kings chapter 5. If you have your Bibles, I'm going to be reading from the ESV version of the Bible. I'm not going to put it up on the screen. So you can either read, follow with me on your Bible or on your smartphone or you can just sit and listen. And it's it's a beautiful and a very interesting story but a in many ways, a very surprising and challenging story. Uh, and, and the story centers a, around a man called Naaman. I'm just going to read that for you. Um, 2 Kings 5, from verse 1 to 19. It says, Naaman... Uh, sorry, let me just maybe also mention just this uh, just to sort of give you context. There are basically three stories in this one story. The, the, one, the first story is about a slave girl a little girl, a young girl, probably in pre, a pre-teen girl, who gets human trafficked. Okay, Very difficult circumstances. The second is about um, an Israelite king who gets put into a difficult spot. So, so it's about the slave girl and how she responds. About this Israelite king who gets sort of a difficult message and how he responds. And then about Naaman, this general, and about he, how he responds. And we can learn a lot from their responses. Some of them respond positively, and some of them respond negatively. So I just want you to notice their responses. It says, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor. Because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. He had leprosy, which was a progressive skin disease which eventually led to your limbs falling off that was how bad it was over years just became worse and worse terrible disease verse 2 says now the syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of israel and she worked in the service of naaman's wife she said to her mistress would that the lord uh, would that that my lord were with a prophet who is in samaria he would cure him of his leprosy so naaman went in and told is Lord, the king of Syria. Thus, and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, uh, which read, When this letter reaches you, Know that I have sent you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill or to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. He's trying to pick a fight with me. You know? He wants to come and attack me and this is just an excuse. And then in verse 8, it says, But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean.'" But Naaman was angry and went away uh, saying, so listen to his response, he's, he's, he's angry, he's upset. He went away saying, behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the le- leper or the leprosy. Are not Abana, Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father, it is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God. And his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child. and he was clean. Then he returned to the man of God, he and his company. And he came and stood before him. And he said, Behold, I know, I know that there is no God in all the earth but in Israel. So accept now a present from, from your servant. But he, that's Elisha, said, As the Lord lives before whom I stand, I will receive none. And he urged him to take it. But he refused, Elisha refused. Then Naaman said, if not, if you don't take the present, please let there be given to your servant two mule loads of earth. For from now on your servant will not offer burnt offerings, uh, offer burnt offering or sacrifice to any God but the Lord, but Yahweh. In this matter may the Lord pardon your servant. When my master, the king of Syria, goes into the house of Ramon, the, the false god that he worships, to worship there, leaning on my arm, I will bow myself, and I bow myself in the house of Ramon. When I bow myself in the house of Ramon, the Lord pardon your servant in this matter. And he, Elisha, said to him, go in peace. And what we see here is these three people, and the interesting thing is all of them end up in some ways in difficult circumstances, and they respond differently to it. They respond differently to it. And we can learn a lot from it. Firstly, there's this, this little girl. You know, the Syrians come and they raid Israel. And they take her away. I mean, it doesn't give much detail. But they human trafficker basically. From Israel to Syria. And she becomes a slave in the household of Naaman. I mean, you can just imagine how terrible that is. Awful. Being human trafficked. I mean, just think of that. I mean, I I think of my daughter, Kirsten, who's eight years old. And this little girl was probably about, about her age. Now, if that happened to her, I mean, it would devastate me. But I also wonder, if that happened to her, would she be able to handle these difficult circumstances in the way that this little Israelite girl handled it? Can you see what she does? You can see she doesn't have a bad attitude. She said... Would that my Lord... I mean, just look at the respect that she shows to Naaman, her slave owner. Just look at the respect she shows. Would that my Lord were in Samaria? Because the prophet there would be able to cure him. So she's a witness for Yahweh, saying there's a prophet of the Lord of Yahweh in Samaria and Israel, and he can cure these kind of things. So she's in these difficult circumstances, which are really bad. I mean, I don't know of any father who has daughters who doesn't love the movie Taken. <laughs> I love that movie because it's this movie about this, this uh, ex-CIA or CIA agent or something with like serious you know, spy skills. And his daughter gets human trafficked in Europe and he goes and he says to these guys, listen here you've messed with the wrong guy, I'm going to get you. And when I get you, there's going to be trouble. And then he does get them, and then there is trouble. And I mean, there's a lot of violence, but most fathers who have daughters enjoy it. Yes, get them, sort them out, you know. (laughs) If I had the skills, I'd do that to someone who (laughs) who messed with my daughter. Being human trafficked is not a joke. It's terrible, I mean... In the movie it's quite realistic how it's portrayed, but you know, how the the girls who are human trafficked are, are abused sexually, you know, handcuffed to a bed and just used by men who pay and, and just come in and just use them. They they made addicted to drugs. They die often, either of overdoses or of just the abuse, the physical abuse. Now, I don't think, you know, with this little girl that it was quite that situation, but she was still a slave. Terrible situation. And here's the biggest difficulty, and and something that the author of this portion of Scripture, the inspired author of this portion of Scripture, says and understood, and which this little girl also seemed to see and understand. It doesn't just say that she was human trafficked. It says that, Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man uh, with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Hello. By Naaman, the Lord had given victory to Syria. In other words, God was using Naaman and in one of those raids, the Lord gave victory to Syria over Israel. And this little girl was taken as a captive to Syria. Is that hard to deal with? But the writer seems to understand that. And the little girl seems to understand it Because here's the thing. She lived in Naaman's household as if the Lord had sent her to be there. And here's the question. Here's the question that that begs. Can we live everywhere as though the Lord sent us there? Can we live everywhere as though the Lord sent us there? And I think this little girl poses a massive challenge to us, comfortable Westerners in this modern age. Because if she could live as a slave in a foreigner's house, after being human trafficked there, What excuse do we have? Is there then any place in your life, any situation in your life that you cannot live as though the Lord had sent you to be there? She understood this. She had maturity way beyond her years. And she lived in in those difficult circumstances as though the Lord had sent her to be there. And she represented him and said, He's a prophet in Samaria. He's a prophet in Israel. He can actually cure my master. In other words, here's the thing. Here's the thing. She said, okay, I am sent. I haven't, I've been human trafficked, but, but I, I, I see not only the hand of my captors in this. I see the hand of my Lord, of, the, of, the, of, of God in this. He has sent me here to serve and to do good to those who captured me and human trafficked me. Wow. (laughs) You say, no, 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 no. You must be misinterpreting that, Annie. It cannot mean that. What happened to Joseph? Wasn't he also human trafficked? Didn't he say in Genesis 45 that the Lord sent me ahead of you? This is not just a bad thing that his brothers did to him. The Lord sent him ahead of his brothers in order to do good, not only to the people that he was sold to as a slave, to Egypt, but to the very brothers who who sold him as a slave. Can we live everywhere as though the Lord sent us there? I think this story tells us, yes, we can. We can. And then the second part of the story, you have almost the polar opposite. Rather than a small, vulnerable, immature, little Israelite girl, you have a powerful, mature, secure Israelite king. And with this little girl, the thing that she has to battle with is, injustice has been done against me. I've been human trafficked. I've been sold as a slave. And you know what? Let me just maybe stand still at that. Because... So often, when we get into difficult situations like that, it is because of injustice against us, right? Think about Joseph. Think about this little girl. Think about Jesus. Often you end up in difficult situations because injustice has been done against you. And then what do we do? The temptation is to respond to that injustice and become bitter and angry. And not and treat it like this you know, cosmic tragedy that we're in Instead of treating it like this little girl did, as a situation that God sent her in so that she can go and represent him. So she clearly dealt with all the feelings that this injustice you know, resulted in. The bitterness, the anger, the fear, the frustration. She dealt with that. So that she could be there, live there, as though God had sent her to be there. Now you have this king, powerful king. And here comes Naaman with a letter, drops it on, uh, off at him, and he reads the letter. And the king of Syria, who, by the way, rem- remember, the Lord had been giving Syria victory through Naaman. So they were like, in military terms, they were the top dogs. And they've been building up a reputation of, they winning the battles. And now this king gets this letter. You know, I've sent him to you so that, and, and, and you, can, you can sort of see in the letter, you know, that the king favors him. You know, so that you can heal him of his leprosy. And the king of Israel tears his robes, it says. Why did he do that? Whenever, you, whenever a high standing official tore their robes, and, and, and you got robes that, that sort of um, represented your office. So the priest had the priestly garment with the ephod and all that kind of stuff. And the king had a kingly garment, etc. So so anyone who was in an office representing the nation, whether it's the the high priest, you know, representing in the temple before God, or the king representing uh, the people, your clothes represented your office and the fact that you represented the people. In other words, by tearing his clothes, he was saying, this is a national tragedy. This is a national crisis. So his immediate, his knee-jerk reaction is very negative. And he represents the people and says, I'm tearing my robes because this is a national crisis. And he forgets all about representing God. And he says, am I God that I can give life or or kill or give life or that I can heal this guy from his leprosy? Am I God? And And the question totally misses the point. The point is not that you must be God in order to be able to handle a difficult situation. You must just represent God in that situation. And the king missed it. And it's so ironic that this little slave girl, immature slave, vulnerable slave girl, could get it. And this powerful, secure king, mature king, does not get it. And that's why Elisha rebukes him. And he says, Why did you tear your robe? You see, what, what hesa came to. The slave girl had the temptation to succumb to the injustice against her. He succumbed, this king succumbed to the fear. fear. When you're in difficult situations, often you'll face fear. And the temptation will be there to succumb to that fear. To give in to that fear. To not believe that God has allowed the situation in your life. And that God is actually in control of the situation. Even though it doesn't always look that way. So he stared himself, he was staring so much at this powerful king of Syria who had been winning all these military victories that he forgot to look at God. He was like Peter when he was walking on the water and he looked, while he was looking at Jesus he could walk on the water. But as soon as he looked away uh, from Jesus to the wind and the waves, he started to sink. And so often in, in situations like that, we look away from the Lord and we look towards the wind and the wave, the circumstances, the people, and we become afraid. We become terrified and we cannot live, we cannot live in that situation as though God sent us to be there. And that king, who was supposed to represent God, ended up not representing God because he succumbed to the fear. And how often do we succumb to fear in situations like that? Because we don't really believe that God is God. There are so many Christians. We come to situations like that, and we cannot handle it because we don't come to it with a Christian worldview. We don't come with it to, to that situation with a faith in God that, that Lauren was talking about. We don't actually believe in God or that He's in control, that He's God. You might say, "But, but what about the devil? Doesn't the devil get you into situations like that? Yes, but it doesn't matter. God's more powerful than the devil. And you know what? According to my reading of the Bible, the devil can do nothing that God doesn't allow. I mean, that's what the story of Job is about. When, when God brags about Job, he says, have you seen my servant Job, that there's no one as righteous as he in all the world? What does this devil say? Yeah, yeah, but he doesn't serve you for nothing. Look how you protect him. You build a hedge of protection around him. I can't even touch him with a barge pole. I can't get near him. And God says, fine, I'll take away the protection. Do your worst. I'll show you. You still glorify me. But he couldn't do anything that the Lord didn't allow. Because the Lord even said, you may touch everything he has, but don't touch him. During the first round of the fight. We know in the second round things escalated a bit. In in the New Testament, um, Jesus says to to Peter, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked for you to sift you like wheat. Now, forget about all the other stuff. Jesus says, I've prayed for you that when you come through it, words, I'm going to allow it, strengthen your brethren. But notice, he says, Satan has. Satan has to stand with his hat in his hand and ask God permission to do stuff to us. Am I missing something here? Is this challenging? So it doesn't matter what the devil does. I mean, was the devil involved in Joseph being sold into slavery and ending up as a slave in Egypt? Possibly. Doesn't matter. The point was God was involved. Yes, his brothers did sin, so I'm sure the devil was also involved. But God was involved. Ultimately God sent Joseph, even though his brothers had sinned against him. Now, I obviously don't have you know, time to go into all the details, but my point is, do we live in every situation as though God has sent us to be there? Are we like the slave girl, or like the Israelite king? And then we have the example of Naaman himself. Now, he comes into this situation, um, Letter to the king, eventually Elisha says, come to my house. He comes to Elisha's house, and you just imagine, you know, with all this silver, all this gold, all this clothing, these chariots, you know, horsemen, big entourage, you know, much bigger than our ministers with their cars and motorcycles and blue lights and stuff, you know, riding down the road. You know, everyone's getting out of the way, you know, you know this big caravan coming and stopping in front of Elisha's house. Elisha doesn't even come out to meet this guy. He sends a messenger and says, go and wash seven times in the Jordan River. And this guy is furious. He says, I thought he'd at least show me the courtesy of coming out and speaking to me himself. I am, does he know who I am? Does he know who I am? I am Naaman, the Syrian general who has been, by the way, kicking his army's butt in battle. That is who I am. I am the top dog in Syria. I am the man. Does he know who I am? And he doesn't even show me the courtesy of coming out to meet me. And he goes away in a rage. And you see the personal pride that he has. You know, he, he thinks he's really someone. And when Elisha slights that pride, you know, touches his ego, slights his ego by not you know, honoring him by coming out and groveling in before him and, and waving his hand. Because he, he sees expectation, he has this pagan expectation here. He's going to wave his hand over the spot and then the leprosy is going to go away as though Elisha is a magician and not a prophet. But he goes away in a huff. And then he says, you know, aren't, um, you know, and he mentions a few uh, rivers in, in, in Syria, you know, Farpar and, and so on. Aren't those better rivers, bigger rivers, more beautiful rivers than the Jordan? You know, than all the waters of Israel. So he doesn't only have personal pride. He has national pride. Not only am I really someone and actually better than Elisha and all these Israelites that we are busy conquering. But we, we Syrians, we are better than them. Our rivers are better than theirs. I, could go, I, I, I wouldn't mind swimming seven times in one of our own rivers because they're much better than this, you know, muddy Jordan. Can Naaman be in this situation as though the Lord had sent him to be there? Where, where the slave girl faced injustice as the obstacle and the Israelite king faced fear as the obstacle, Naaman faced pride as the obstacle. So often we cannot live in a situation as though God sent us to be there because of our pride. We cannot receive Pride finds it very hard to receive, right? In fact, it's almost impossible for pride to receive because receiving implies a degree of vulnerability and need and pride doesn't want to admit need. And even when pride can receive, it wants to receive on its own terms. I want to receive in a way that makes me look good and feel good. And you know, God's not always going to set it up that way. How often has our pride prevented us from receiving what the Lord has for us? How often? How often has our pride prevented us from living in a situation as though God had sent us there? As though God had put us there? It almost did for Naaman. It almost prevented him from receiving from the Lord. He was on his way back to Syria and his his servants came and begged with him and said, Listen yeah." This is a great word that the prophet has given you, you know. If if he had said something, you know, small, wouldn't you just have done it? I mean, it's not a a big thing to just go and dip seven times in the Jordan. I mean, you could actually be healed of your leprosy. I mean, you you do realize what this leprosy is going to do to you. I I mean, you have a few spots of leprosy now, or a spot of leprosy now, but it's just going to become worse over years. Over a period of ten years, it's going to become worse and worse, spread across your whole body. Eventually, your limbs are going to start falling off. And then you're going to die. And people will not be able to touch you because there's going to be this oozing pus coming out of your whole body. It's seriously contagious. This is bad. You're going to start smelling ro- like rotting meat. You know, and, and and all you have to do, apparently, is go and wash seven times in, in the Jordan and, and then you'll be clean. I mean, do you really want to take the chance of not doing it? And, and they obviously prevailed upon him. And he goes and washes, dips himself seven times in the Jordan and... He's healed. His skin, it says, becomes like a, that of a little child, like a newborn almost. Perfect. And he's clean. And all of a sudden you see a big change in his life. We've previously said, I thought he'd at least come out and meet me and, and, and call upon the name of the Lord, his God. And you can see sort of the spiritual distance between Naaman and, and, and Yahweh, the Lord. Um, now he comes to Elisha and he says, now I know, now I know that there's no god in all the world except in Israel and i will not sacrifice to any other god i will not sacrifice to any other god and then he's faced with a, another difficulty it seems like he has to go back because i mean that's a clear cut i mean as clear a conversion experience as you could have in the old testament that naaman had he's he's humble now no longer cocky and proud he's humble and he acknowledges the Lord as the only God in all of Israel. He was converted. He has converted to the worship of Yahweh, to the worship of the Lord. But now he's faced with a very difficult situation. He has to go back to Syria. And then when the king, who is clearly an elderly king, goes in to worship in the temple of Ramon, his idol, he, 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 he leans on On Naaman's arm, and Naaman has to escort this elderly king into the temple. And then the king bows down. I mean, it won't look good if the king bows down and Naaman stands. He has to bow down too, but he says, I don't want to offer burnt offerings or worship any other God anymore. I'm now a worshiper of Yahweh. What can I do? And so often we get sent into situations where that look impossible. Where it looks like, how on earth can I glorify God in this situation? Doesn't look possible, right? you know what his solution was? He was a sharp fellow. He said, give me two donkey loads of dirt. And we we're like, huh? <laughs> How does that solve your problem? <laughs> How does two donkey loads of dirt solve your worship problem? Well, he, he says, now I know that there's no other God in all the world except in Israel. And the gods of those days, in the, in the mindset, the worldview of the time, were associated with a country in which they were worshipped. So Yahweh was associated with Israel, Ramon was associated with Syria. Amon Ra was associated with Egypt, the sun god Amon Ra, because you know, he was the, the the god there. And that's what why the exile was such a, you know, terrible um, insult, not only to Israel but to the god of Israel, because if you beat another nation in battle, it was seen that not only did your army beat their army, but your God beat their God. And it was, it was seen that, that uh, you know, in the way that you know, the God of a certain nation only had power really in that nation. And received worship in that nation. And what Naaman was doing, in other words, was he was saying, I'm going to show the people of my nation. Even when I go into the temple of Ramon. I mean, can you worship Yahweh in the temple of Ramon? We're very quick often to say no. Naaman knew a bit more than we knew. He said, Yes, just give me two donkey loads of dirt, the dirt of Israel. And I'm going to, every time I go into the temple with, you know, escorting the king, and when he kneels down, I'm going to reach into my pocket for a handful of dirt and I'm going to sprinkle it on the ground of that temple. So that people of my culture can see in a way that they understand and can relate to. That I'm no longer kneeling on the floor of the temple of Ramon. I'm kneeling on the dirt of the land of Israel. Because I'm no longer worshipping Ramon, the idol. I'm worshipping Yahweh, the God of Israel. Can we live everywhere as though the Lord had sent us there? Can we live, can we stand, or even kneel in the temple of Ramon as though the Lord God had sent us there? And I think the answer of this passage is, yes you can. Sometimes it's not easy. You've got to go figure out, you know, what is my temple of Ramon? What is my handful of dirt? That I need to sprinkle. To say to my culture in the way that they can understand that I'm not worshipping their idol. I might be in the finance business, but I'm not worshipping mammon like the rest of my colleagues. And I, I need to be a financier or a banker in a way that shows them I don't worship the same God as them. How do I do that? How do I take God with me into the boardroom? I heard of the story about this one man who was a CEO of a company, a very committed Christian. And the boardroom is not a place where you usually are allowed to discuss religion or faith or worship. And what he would do is he, 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 he stood up and, and, and vacated the chair at the head of the table and he moved to the chair right next to it. And when they asked him, why, why don't you sit on the customary place on, at the head of the table, he said, no, that chair's for the Holy Spirit. And that was his two donkey loads of dirt. Can we live everywhere as though the Lord sent us there? Because the the point of the story and so many other stories in the Bible is that the Lord has sent us there. The Lord has sent us there. In other words, we should live everywhere as though the Lord sent us there. Listen to what. Um, now, uh, let me just admit that this is not that easy. It's not that easy. I'll admit that. Where do you get the power? Where do you get the inspiration to live like this? I mean, being human trafficked, facing the threat of a foreign power, going, having to go back to the temple of an idol to go and worship there—those aren't easy situations. Where do I get the inspiration? Where do I get the power? Where do I get the grace to live like that? Where do I get the grace to overcome the fear, the injustice, the pride, the seemingly impossible circumstances that I might find myself in? Well, we look to the ultimate sent one. John 1 verse 14 says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, the glory as of the only Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. God will never, God the Father will never send you into more difficult circumstances than He's already sent His Son, Jesus Christ. And Jesus lived everywhere as though God the Father sent Him there. Of course, the Father had sent Him there. He faced the ultimate injustice. I mean, when, when, when people die, are executed today... They might not die even for the crime they committed, but there are no real innocent victims because all of us are sinners who deserve to die, right? Here was one man who had never sinned, and he was tortured to death. The ultimate injustice. And he treated that situation as though God had sent him to be there. I mean, we think we have in certain circumstances cause to be afraid. Jesus, I mean, we're afraid because we imagine what could possibly go wrong in a certain circumstances, and that makes us afraid. Jesus knew what was going to go wrong. And that even God the Father would have to turn away from him in his greatest hour of need. Well, that's why he was so distressed in the Garden of Gethsemane. That's why his sweat became like blood. I mean, this is the most terrifying situation you can imagine. Imagine. God might ask us to go through difficult situations, but we'll never, never have to go through that situation saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Like Jesus did. And Jesus said that so that we would not have to. Jesus faced the ultimate fear so that we can face our lesser fears with inspiration and with courage. Knowing that he's already gone through much more than we'll ever have to. And he'll never leave us and never forsake us like Sunette said. What about pride? I mean, here's one man, if anyone ever had an excuse to be proud, I mean, it's Jesus. He's God himself in the flesh. He's perfect. And yet, Jesus, Philippians 2 says, he humbled himself to to take on human form and to to die the most humiliating death on the cross. I mean, if anyone ever had an excuse to To be proud, it was Jesus. I mean, it would even be understandable. He's got a lot to be proud of. He's God, he's perfect. And yet, he humbled himself and treated the shame, the humiliation. I mean, he hung naked there on the cross. Not because of anything he'd done, but because of everything we'd done. He was spat upon, he was mocked, he was cursed. And he received it all with complete humility. I mean, talk about a difficult, seemingly impossible situation. Not only was he supposed to be tortured to death on the cross, which was, I mean, the word excruciating, crux is the Greek word for for cross, excruciating comes from the word cross. It's, 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 It's one of the most painful deaths we know of. But he had to do it without the support and favor of the Father. He had to do, hang there, being tortured to death, saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Talk about an impossible situation. Jesus faced the ultimate impossible situation. And he did it as though God the Father had sent him to be there. And if we can look at Jesus, the ultimate send one, who says, by the way, to us in the next scripture, John 20 verse 21, Jesus said to them, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, even so I'm sending you. Hello. As the Father sent me to incarnate his glory, his grace and his truth, to represent him everywhere I am in human form, so I am sending you to incarnate my glory. So I'm sending you to represent me. How can we have peace in situations like these? Only if we understand that we can do it in Christ. Only in Christ. Only if we see that he's already gone before us and done it. We can live everywhere as though God sent us there. Now I want to just ask you in in closing, what difficult situations do you currently find yourself in that you would have avoided? Seemingly impossible situations. And what prevents you from living everywhere as though God sent you there. Is it injustice? Is it fear? Is it pride? Is it just the situation itself that seems impossible? Guess what? Jesus has already come, overcome all of those obstacles. He's already overcome them. Look at Jesus and be inspired. Look to Jesus and find your strength. Look to Jesus and emulate him. Look to Jesus who was sent by the Father and say, well, Jesus has sent me in the same way into this situation. Then you'll be able to serve your colleagues, or your boss, while being unreasonable with the love of God, just like that Israelite girl served her master with the love of God. Then you'll be able to do good to those who treat you ill, Then you'll be able to serve your child who is disabled or is a drug addict. And keep on praying for them. Because ultimately it doesn't depend on you. It depends on Jesus who died for her or for him. Then you'll be able to face that family conflict. And say, well, Jesus has faced worse. And I'm here not to represent myself, but to represent God who sent me here. Then we'll be able to say in the society where there's so much racism, so much conflict, so much inequality. How can I live here? How can I live everywhere in South Africa as though God sent me there? How can I represent God and not myself? How can I represent God's interest and not my own interest? How can I serve people who are maybe angry at me and who see me as an enemy? How can I serve them with the love of God? And show them that the God who loves me loves them too. And the Jesus who died for me has died for them too. How can I show them that? Because it's no longer about me. When I can live everywhere as though God sent me there, it's no longer about me, it's about God. And that's the big shift that happens and should happen in our hearts. If Jesus was willing to suffer the ultimate pain injustice, fear, humiliation, impossible situation for me, then should I not also be willing in a much smaller degree to suffer these same things for Him as He sends me, as the Father has sent Him. Amen. Imagine what your life would look like if you could live everywhere as though God sent you there. In your family. In your workplace. In your community. Imagine how our church would look. If we, as a community, could live everywhere as though God sent us there. Imagine that. Imagine what the impact we'd have on our communities. Imagine how our family lives would look. Imagine how our workplaces would look. What shining lights we would be in the workplace if we had that sense of I'm sent to be here yes it's difficult yes it's uncomfortable yes there's sacrifices yes it's painful but God sent me here and wherever He guides He provides His grace is sufficient for me imagine how our workplaces would look if we as a community could live like that wouldn't we turn this city upside down if we lived everywhere as though God sent us there I think we would. And I think it's that sentness, that revelation, that awareness of our sentness that God wants to give us this day. So I want to challenge you. There's what I want you to practically do. And I'm, I'm, I'm closing with this. This is the, your homework. For the next month, let's constantly remind ourselves and one another that we should live everywhere as though God sent us there. Amen? Can we do that? Can we remind ourselves when we're at work, God has sent me here. God has sent me here. I'm going to live for Him here. Let's remind ourselves in our family situation, you know, even when it's difficult, God has sent me here. I'm going to live here as though God has sent me here. I'm going to live here as His representative. Let's SMS one another. Let's encourage one another at small group. Let's constantly, you know, WhatsApp one another and say, listen here, remember. I know you're struggling at work, but remember. You've got to live there as though God sent you there because he has sent you there. You are his representative. You are his light in that darkness. You are his love in that harsh environment. Let's stand. You guys ready to do that? Let's, ma- let's do a, a social experiment. And let's see <laughs> what happens and what the impact on our lives are and the lives of the people around us. We live everywhere as though God sent us there. And let's ask the Holy Spirit to remind us and empower us. So just close your eyes right there where you are. Lord God, we come before you and Lord, we so easily forget. So easily forget, like that Israelite king, about you, and we so easily shift our focus away from you and onto ourselves, onto our inabilities rather than your supreme ability. Forgive us for that, and we pray, Holy Spirit, that even as we remind ourselves and remind one another during this coming month, that you will remind us that we are called to live everywhere as though you sent us there. Please remind us in every situation especially in the difficult situations, that we are sent by Jesus Christ and by the living God to represent you there and, and help us, give us the grace and the power to do it. Jesus, we look to you as our inspiration. You inspire us, Jesus. You are our hero. And we pray, Lord, that you help us to be like you, in Jesus' name. Amen.